Welcome to the Life of Christ, Series 5, Term 1. We are on Lesson 7, and we are beginning the Sermon on the Mount, which is Chapter 18 in your books. I'm just going to begin at, the, at the, just the top of the page and begin reading down the page, and when we get somewhere where I want to preach, I'll preach. <laughs> okay? It's a lot of information here, and the first part of this is just information that I want to just read out to you, basically. Following the choosing of the twelve in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, and the healing of the multitude in verses 17 through 19, the next event chronologically is what Luke records in verses 20 through 49, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, even though Luke's account of this event is in chronological order, because Matthew's account contained in chapters 5 through 7 with 111 verses, is so much more detailed than Luke's account, contained in chapter 6 with only 30 verses, we will be using Matthew's account primarily as our study guide. However, it is also important to note that even though Luke's account is shorter, it does include some teaching that Matthew's account doesn't. So even though we'll begin with Luke 6.20 for the sake of continuity, which also happens to be Matthew's first beatitude, we will be primarily following Matthew's account with the exception of certain verses that are found only in Luke's account and that have no parallel in, in Matthew, as will be the case with verses 24 through 26 of Luke 6, where Jesus teaches on all the woes. Now, before we begin looking at these verses, it should be noted that there have been some discussion about whether or not Luke's account, which some call the Sermon on the Plain, is the same as Matthew's account generally known as the Sermon on the Mount. There are some convincing arguments both ways, with some believing that the two accounts are not the same event, and that Jesus preached the same sermon on on more than one occasion, and others believing that both accounts are variations of the same event. John MacArthur offers one possible explanation by saying that Luke's version is abbreviated somewhat, somewhat because he omitted sections from the sermon that are uniquely Jewish, particularly Christ's exposition of the law. Aside from that, the two sermons follow exactly the same flow of thought, beginning with the Beatitudes and ending with the parable about building on the rock. Differences in wording between the two accounts are undoubtedly owing to the fact that the sermon was originally delivered in Aramaic. Luke and Matthew translate into Greek with slight variances. Of course, both translations are equally inspired and authoritative. All right, let me just stop for a second. All right, so what, we're, what basically we're noticing here is that, first of all, we, when we look at this again, we, we've got two accounts that a lot of people have been sort of saying, well, are they the same account or are they different accounts? At the end of the day, and this is why next statement, regardless of who is right, what's of greatest importance here is the teaching that the two accounts contain, and because of their great similarity, would be more efficient that we study them together to get the most out of them. Amen? So, if somebody's out there and has an issue with, well, that should be the Sermon on the Plain, and that should be the Sermon on the Mount, fine, have the issue. <laughs> okay? I really don't care. that They are so similar, it, it would be logical to study them together. And also, because of their differences, it is also important to understand why there is a difference. Amen? And I'm going to be talking about that in some detail. Uh, Like I said before as well, the arguments for both are are very valid. I've I've just read through a whole lot of different um, authors saying different things. 
and they all held water, so to speak. <laughs> okay, and uh, I, I, I know at the end of the day, I, I just I just had to pray about it because I thought, okay, do we deal with this as two separate things or as you know all at once? And uh, the final statement that I made there is the answer that I believe that I received from God, and that was teach them they're the same. It's more efficient to just go through both of them together. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. Otherwise, I'll be going backwards and forwards. Because once, once we get to the, the second account, whichever we, account we did first, we'll be referring back and you might not remember. So, okay? So we decided not to do that. Right. So as mentioned before, we'll begin in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, where it says again, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his, toward his disciples and said... Now, to get a little more information about why Jesus lifted up his eyes toward his disciples... We need to go to Matthew's parallel account. That fills in uh, some of the gaps between the last event of Jesus healing the multitudes and Jesus deciding to train up a ministry team. With Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1 saying, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Now remember again, this is happening. The reason that we're continuing on from Luke's account is because Luke's account gave us, uh, if you went back, it, it showed us, uh, that he, it says that he healed. Remember again, uh, it says the whole multitude sought to touch him. Can I just go back a few pages? Because I think this might actually help you. I want to begin reading. I've gone back to chapter 17 and page 14. Just very quickly. In fact, no, I'll go to page 15. Because we've got Luke chapter 6 verses 17 and 18 uh, there on that page. So let me just begin there. I'm reading from Luke chapter 6, verse uh, 17, and then on to verse 18. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Verse 18. As well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. I'm turning my page now. We're off to page 16. It says, And the whole multitude sought to touch him. I'm in Luke 6, 19. For power went out from him and healed them all. So this is an incredible event that was taking place. Alright? So following this, now we're on to chapter 18 and verse 20. It says, Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said... You all see that now? Okay, so... Seeing the multitude now, he lifted up his eyes and said. So we're in page, on page 2 in chapter 18. And uh, to get some information about why Jesus lifted up his eyes again towards his disciple, it says in Matthew 5.1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. When, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And now having seated himself down, and having his disciples come to him, we can add Luke's account, which said, Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciple and... As Matthew 5, 2 puts it, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So thank God we're there now. All right, so here come the first beatitude. All right? So the first thing that Jesus teaches is, he says in uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, Blessed are you poor, I'm on the bottom of page 2, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now I want you to take note that of two particular words, I've underlined them for you. He says, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Right? In Matthew's parallel account, Matthew records Jesus saying, this is in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the differences? One is poor and it's, it's linked to the kingdom of God. The other is poor in spirit and linked to the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Contrary to what some believe, we've already discovered in our previous studies, and I've noted it down there, that the two phrases, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, are not the same. Some people think they're the same and they use them interchangeably. They're not. Okay, all right. Sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't. This time it matters. (laughs) Okay, when it doesn't matter, I'll tell you. And it's precisely because of this difference that one gospel writer simply says poor, and the other says poor in spirit. Firstly, as to the term the kingdom of God, quick revision, okay? The term, uh, the Greek word God being theos, so remember again that it refers to a spiritual kingdom. So as to the kingdom of God, it refers to a spiritual kingdom just like God is a spirit. While the kingdom of heaven, which is the Greek word, that, okay, refers to a physical kingdom, just as heaven is an actual place where God rules and reigns. Amen? So the, the easy way of remembering that is heaven is a place. Alright? When it says kingdom of God, remember God is a spirit. Okay? And, and Jesus said that. So whenever you think God, think spirit. Whenever you think heaven, think natural. Land. Okay? Because heaven is a place. Alright, that's just the way I remember it. Next, remember that we also discovered that only Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, 33 times. And that was because he was primarily addressing Jews in his gospel, who were waiting for the return of their Messiah king, like David, who would restore the physical land back to them, so that they could once again have heaven on earth. But it was not yet time for Isaiah 9-6 to fully come to pass, which said, and the government will be upon his shoulders. A lot of churches usually read this at Christmas, you know, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and then this part comes and the government will be upon his shoulders. From that first part to the second part is the whole church age. And, and because of the Old Testament, because they were Jewish, they didn't know about the church. Amen? And Jesus hints at it when he's talking about uh, the Roman centurion. Remember when he talked to the Roman centurion, he said they will come from the east and the west? You know, and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, we'll get to all that later. So they need to understand that before this could happen, this is the Jews, okay? And if they were ever going to see this kingdom, something of great importance needed to happen first. And that was the new birth. This was going to be the greatest spiritual blessing, notice I said spiritual blessing, okay? Uh, of all, because without it, none of them would be able to enter the kingdom of God which in turn provided entry into the kingdom of heaven itself. Do you see the connection there? Okay. That's why Jesus would say to Nicodemus, who happened to be a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, and by our standards a very religious man, and that's in the best way possible, doing everything he knew to do right, in John chapter 3, verses 3, 5, and 6, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, literally reborn from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus then goes and says in verses 5 and 6, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water, referring to natural birth, and the Spirit, referring to the spiritual rebirth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So, I'm giving you a lot of information here, aren't I? All right, (laughs) let me just stop for a minute. All right. 
One of the things that, see, with the Jews, they want a physical kingdom. All right? But one of the things that they had to realize was that you can't enter that, that kingdom without having a spiritual rebirth. Something, you needed to be spiritually reborn before you could enter that spiritual kingdom, so to speak. Do you understand? Which was heaven, which is a place. So you can't get to that place. And see, they're waiting for that place. And they're really waiting for that kind of um, dominion that, that God has over that place to be on this earth. That, that God would be ruling this place. That people would not be. You know, especially the Roman government wouldn't be. Do you understand? And so they're waiting for that to be reestablished in this earth. See, they were looking for somebody like David to come along and, and just conquer everybody and give it all back to them. Because David did that. David just conquered everybody. You know, it was a, a time of peace because there was nobody to fight. Everybody was conquered. <laughs> this is kind of interesting. And so because of that, it, they had peace. It was a forced peace, but it was there. <clears throat> okay, so interestingly, the Roman government did exactly the same thing, but not for the same reason. You know, they wanted to expand their em- empire and have everybody under their dominion, basically. Amen? And so, uh, because of the, the sin um, that was committed, I don't want to go into all the, the ways and wherefores and everything relating to this, but because um, you know, Israel committed sin and did things that they weren't sup- supposed to do, and the kings did things they weren't supposed to do, following the, the reign of David, they went downhill. And so, you know, whenever we get out of God's protection, then guess what? The enemy comes in like a flood. And so many people say, well, God made that happen. He didn't make that happen. He allowed it to happen. A lot of the uh, language in the Old Testament is permissive. It isn't that God initiated something. It's just that God couldn't do anything about it. He just let it happen because there is law in the universe. And if he breaks that law, then, he, then Satan can usurp his authority because Satan's always breaking the law. And he says, well, what makes you any different to me? If you are, you know, if I'm in the position that I am in and I can't do the things I want to do because it's breaking the law, you know, if you break the law, then you're in that same position and you can't then enforce law on me while you're not keeping it yourself. You know what I'm trying to say? Did I lose everybody there? Do we all, we're good? Okay. Okay, it's, I'm sorry. Uh, but because of that, he, you know, a lot of things in the Old Testament is, has the permiss- permissive sense of things happening because God just had to take His hand off and allow it to happen because people put themselves in a bad position. The Apostle John talks about it in this way and he says that if we are in the light as He is in the light, can I just, uh, just say it this way, everything is cool. But if we get out of the light... We are getting out of, you know, remember he said God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Which means we have to get out of our dark place and come into his light. He is not going to give up his light to come into our dark place because he is light. Wherever he goes, it gets light. It becomes bright. But, and so why doesn't he invade our territory? Because we have a will. Because he said you decide what you want to do. You know, the Old Testament, it says choose you this day. You know, and, and, and you know, it said, and, uh, you know, they kind of said, just in case you get the answer wrong, choose life. Because some people are like, ah, oh, cricket, cricket, cricket. You know, it's just like, dude, choose life. Oh, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> okay? Uh, but even then, God always encouraged people towards the light and into the light. Why? Because it's safe there. 
Amen. And that's why Colossians talks about that he has rescued us from the, the, the power of darkness. Because it is powerful and we, have, we see now the power that it has, that it has taken over Israel. That they are in a place where they, uh, you know, they are under Roman rule. And the joke of it is, they constantly keep walking around thinking, no, no, you know, we're, the, we're in charge and we know what's going on. And you know, they don't have any authority over us. And all the time they have to keep going to have to go to the Roman government, and this should really annoy them. They'd have to go to the Roman government to get permission for everything. They want to kill Jesus, they have to get the Roman government to do it. Remember? That's the reason why, again, no matter how much how good people were doing, Jesus said you still need to take the step of being born again. You need to be spiritually reborn in order to enter the kingdom of God. And in order to then gain access to heaven itself. Amen? Alright. So, <clears throat> this was what was important to Jews, who even though they knew about God and His heavenly kingdom, and look forward to going there one day, needed to acknowledge their poor spiritual state. If they were ever going to seek to be born again, and enter into the kingdom. In fact, Jesus gave this warning to those who thought they didn't need to do this in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, when He said, And I say to you, that many will come from east and west, referring to us all, okay? And sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See? Physical kingdom, alright? But the sons of the kingdom, now referring to the Jews who refuse to be born again from above, will be cast into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> Notice he says, the sons of the kingdom... They had a place there, but they rejected it. Do you understand? Because, you know, they were the custodians of the Word of God. They knew all this, and they held on to it, and they did a good job to a degree. Okay, to a degree. Okay, in keeping that. But, you know, when, when the Word of God came, they were so steeped in religion, that they went from worshipping what the Word talked about, to the Word itself. Then they would be, they wear these little things on their heads, you know, these little scriptures and stuff. Listen, man, wearing it on your head doesn't do anything. You need to memorize it, it needs to get in your heart. That's when it works. That's why Jesus said, if you believe in your heart and don't doubt, amen, that you shall say to this mountain, be thou removed, and it will move. Okay, end of like, making a long story short. But, but they, see, they became very physical in their worship, they became very outward in their worship. They became very outward in their holiness. They wore white. And they had all these amazing garments. And they believed that that was, you know, the whiter they were on the outside, the more spiritual they were. Jesus would look at them and say, well, you know, it's interesting that tombstone, tombstones are white as well. Just like you. And they're full of dead men's bones. Just like you. Okay, so Jesus is constantly trying to take their eyes off the natural and place them back into the spiritual. And so his first thing that he begins with is, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, listen guys, you need to realize that no matter how much of word that you had around you, spiritually you are bankrupt right now. You are not in a good place. And you need to acknowledge that if ever you are going to get to the place to, to enter into the kingdom of God, and then the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And notice he says, I want you to notice, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Can I say it a little bit different? Blessed are those who acknowledge that they're poor in spirit. That actually need a rebirth. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. Okay. Biblical scholar Leon Morris says that the term for theirs is the kingdom of heaven actually means the riches of the kingdom belong to the poor in spirit in the fullest measure. And he adds that it points to a significant blessing for the poor in spirit right now. Now, understand something. When you acknowledge that you are poor in spirit, that's when you, the door opens for you to receive everything that now you realize you have need of. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, if you say, yes God, I, you know, I am spiritually poor. I am um, in a place where I need you. This was the big thing. Right? They needed to acknowledge that they had a need because they always walked around like we need nothing. We know everything. Remember the, the um, Pharisee and the tax collector praying? You know, it was really interesting. I, I was reflecting on that, talking about spiritual things, okay, and understanding the need for this born-again experience, the, the need to acknowledge that you're spiritually poor. All right? I was thinking about it, and I thought, isn't it interesting how the Pharisee was there, and he not one time acknowledged his need for God. He advertised what he religiously did, that he gave and that he, he fasted and all those things. But not one time did he ask God to forgive him for anything at all. Because as far as he was concerned, he did nothing wrong. And he talks about the tax collector who beat his chest and said, God, I'm a sinner. Let's go to 1 John 1, nine. If we acknowledge our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know it goes in the talk about, and if we say we have no sin, then we make him out to be a liar. So let's, let's apply that to the Pharisee, the person that thinks they don't need anything spiritual, that believes that they're spiritually rich, as opposed to spiritually poor. Okay. Let's apply that to him and understand that he's not blessed. Do you know why? Because Jesus said, one was justified and the other wasn't. Oh, he said one went home justified, the other not. Okay, and so we understand something in a, the, the tax collector acknowledging that he was poor in spirit, so to speak. Can we use those terms now? Okay, he was blessed. He received all of this. The other guy that was, had his, you know, was parading his self-righteousness, because he didn't ask God for anything, didn't repent over anything, do you know what he should have repented over? God I'm sorry for the thoughts that he had that he shouldn't have even said, all right, that came out of his mouth. Sorry, God, for thinking about that man in this way. I'm sorry for judging him. Forgive me of my sin of judgment and pride. Amen? And then God, do you know, that's the sin that started everything. Because Lucifer said, I will be like the most high God. And it went down from there. So it's really interesting when you see people like that. You know where it's coming from. Amen? Can we stop there? Because I, the next thing I want to preach on. The <laughs> it's in, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to read some tremendous verses there. And I don't want to rush through it. 
So take a break and we'll come back and continue on from there.